Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. All right, welcome back to Breaking Down Collapse. This is episode 12. You're going to notice that today's audio sounds a little bit different than normal. Uh, Kellen actually went and got himself some COVID, and so we're uh, socially distancing. We're going to be talking through Zoom today. Yeah, that's right, and I'm sorry for the inconvenience, but I'll just tell you it's been way more inconvenient for me to have COVID. Yeah, whatever, man. I had to set up a whole like second screen for this. <laughs> Yeah, sorry to put such a damper on your world. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell everyone, like, how's it been for you? How you been feeling? I know you said your wife's had it worse than you, right? Yeah, she definitely had a much more severe case than I did. For me, it's just been kind of like a prolonged cold, and I still have some fatigue and headaches. For her, she was just totally wiped out and had fever and chills and no energy and splitting headaches. But even with that, we feel very fortunate because obviously people get it much worse than that. And we're just grateful that we're not hospitalized and especially that it's nothing fatal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're recording this just a week after Thanksgiving, and I know that most parts of the country are expecting it to get pretty nasty after everyone got together with their families on Thanksgiving. So I guess we'll see here in the next couple of weeks if that's true or not. But yeah, glad that you guys didn't end up too bad. Yeah, me too. And it's concerning because I feel like we tried to be pretty careful. You know, we tried to take all the necessary precautions to keep ourselves from getting sick, but somehow or another, we got it. But in a way, it's been a good opportunity for me to slow down a little bit and even to think about some of the things that we've talked about over the last few months. Like here we are talking about 
collapse every week. And in my household, we're dealing with an illness that's caused a global pandemic and seems to just be accelerating all of the issues that we've talked about up to this point. And so it's left me wondering, like, am I prepared for what's coming? And I know we talked about at the end of last episode that that's where the focus was going to be today on preparation. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, this is a fun one to prepare, and I'm excited to dive into it. I actually ended up deciding to break it into two separate episodes. So we're not going to get all the way through it today. We'll do part one today and then part two next week. Just as a bit of an overview for kind of how I've split these apart, this first episode is going to be on more of the philosophy and the reasoning behind how I think it's best to prepare compared to some of the more mainstream ways that a lot of people hear about and kind of get sucked into when it comes to preparedness. Uh, And I'm talking about like with preppers. And then next week, we'll actually talk about some of the more solid like steps that can be taken to prepare in different areas, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And before we dive in, you use the term prepper. Maybe help me understand like how you define that. Who, who or what is a prepper? Yeah, so we'll actually get into the definition of a prepper a little bit into the episode. I, I've mentioned preppers before on here, and, and I, I want to make sure that people know that I don't have anything against preppers themselves or even the idea of prepping because a lot of the way that a lot of the ways that I see myself preparing or wanting to prepare is in line with the ways that preppers prepare but essentially a a prepper it has sort of a negative connotation to it in society because people look at them as kind of being conspiratorial and like very doomsday the world's going to end sort of thing and that's one of the things we'll actually talk about here is that they they tend to to look at it as if it's going to be a single event or a conspiracy theory or a terrorist attack or something like that that's going to pretty immediately cause society to to collapse. Where in our discussions up till now, we've talked about it being probably more of a slow burn and being something that happens over a long time and not quite so dramatically, if that makes sense. So anyway, we'll talk about the differences. But yeah, a prepper is is someone who basically hoards a bunch of stuff, tries to learn a certain set of skills in order to be prepared for the coming collapse. Good. That does help me understand it better. And like you mentioned, I'm sure we're going to be diving into that more. It sounds like the way that you've defined a prepper kind of goes back to our very first episode of the podcast. When you asked me, what do you think of when you hear the term collapse? And I mentioned, oh, it just sounds like some sort of big, crazy apocalypse, some day after tomorrow, I am legend, Hollywood romanticized cataclysmic event. And and that preppers maybe are trying to make sure that they are prepared for something like that, some big, sudden change to the world as we know it. And it makes sense that you might look at preparing a different way if you feel like it's going to be, like you said, a slow burn and a more gradual decline. That's right. And again, just let me say that not all preppers are that way. That's just kind of the general stereotype that you kind of see, right? You go to like a prepper convention. I've never been to one, but I've I've seen some videos on them and, and it's just very extreme. There's that series called Doomsday Preppers. And it's just all very extreme where they're like booby trapping their house and like all sorts of crazy things like that. And while not all preppers are that way, it's that type of prepper that I want to differentiate from, if that makes sense. Great. Well, I mean, at this point, if you're still listening to the podcast, you're either convinced that what we're talking about is true and is probably going to happen, or at the very least, you're giving it every consideration. So there are different levels of awareness when it comes to collapse. 
And we'll talk about those specific levels in a different episode. But the further along the awareness path you find yourself, the more real this whole thing becomes. It's one thing for us to talk about it or to think about it, but another completely to actually internalize it and realize the impact that it's going to have on your daily life. And in the early stages, I think there's a lot of thinking about it kind of as a movie or like a story almost, where you play these scenarios out in your head and it feels kind of disconnected from reality. But there comes a point where it actually clicks and you understand it so deeply that you actually truly internalize it. And the reality and the real implications of it hit you. And so when that happens, your mind can kind of start to do all sorts of things. A recent blog I read, which talks about those five levels of awareness, also talks about the two main routes that people take who are able to reconcile themselves with the prospect of collapse, basically to cope with the fact that there isn't a solution to the problem. And so one of those ways is to look inward on yourself and find a deep sort of spiritual purpose or a self-awareness that allows you to transcend existential threats that are outside of your control and, and find joy in living. The other way is to act, to do something, to prepare yourself for it, to make yourself feel like you're in control. So most people will cope in a mixture of those two ways, but the second is the most common, and that is to to prepare. It's almost a coping mechanism. It's a way to distract yourself from how awful it's going to be by making yourself feel like you're going to be able to handle it a little better. So that means this is an extremely common question. What can we do to prepare ourselves for a collapse. Yeah, and if I can interject, I've got a little bit of a background in psychology and sociology, and at least I'm familiar with the fundamentals there. And pretty much anytime anybody is in a state of crisis, the natural reaction is to try to gain control over as much as you can. So as you describe that, it just makes me think like, I know when we talk about the state of the economy and the political turmoil and all the other things that we've mentioned so far, it feels like I can't really do much. I can't do much to affect the outcome. Like I can't personally reverse climate change. So it leaves you feeling like this lack of control. What can I actually do? And to me, it makes a lot of sense that all we really can control is within our own sphere, right? What can I do in my life to make sure I at least mitigate the damage to myself and to my family if collapse truly is imminent. Yeah, well said. Yeah, that's perfect. That leads me to a couple of caveats maybe to jump into as we get into this episode. And the first is that by the end of a complete collapse, relatively very few people will have actually made it, right? And we're talking about like from like the start of collapse, which you could argue is technically already started to the very end where we're just in the pits of despair and like 10% of people remain, that sort of thing your chances of making it that far or of your descendants making it that far aren't great. And part of being fully collapse aware is understanding and accepting that. Now, this isn't a video game. You don't get multiple lives and it's not going to be a fun experience. And so I'm in no way stating with this episode that preparing yourself will guarantee any sort of success. But like you said, it's our sort of natural inclination to go down this route of wanting to prepare. And I think that collapse is not going to result in extinction and there will be people that make it through. So the more prepared that you are, taking some time and having some foresight now, you can increase your chances and comfort as collapse kind of descends on us. So couple more caveats I want to recognize on that last point that there's a bit of a difference between preparing in a way that increases your chances of staying alive and preparing in a way that increases your comfort levels during collapse. 
not only comfort, but some people would much rather put their energy or time or money into enjoying life now rather than focusing on trying to preserve it later when things get bad. I find myself in that boat, at least with one foot, I don't have a lot of money, my time is precious, and I often find myself thinking that any extra money or time I have should be spent doing fun things with my family, you know, making memories, going on vacations, that sort of thing. And this is perhaps a bit dark, but I have family members who, while not collapse aware, have mentioned that if there were ever a civil war or severe climate change consequences or what they call an apocalypse, that they have no desire to even try and survive through it. And that's a real reaction for a lot of people. And if someone genuinely feels that way, then at least maybe preparing to be as comfortable as possible for as long as possible might be the best solution. So there's different reasons to prepare, and there's different levels of preparedness. You have to kind of come up with what's right for you and your circumstances. So that leads to another caveat, and that it's that we don't know how collapse will unfold. And it's going to vary based on where you live and your circumstances, you know, is this going to be a complete collapse happening over a relatively short amount of time covering the entire globe? Or will it be long and drawn out over decades, you know, hitting different countries, wealth classes unequally? Or like in catabolic collapse, will it be a series of these steps downward over time, each step bringing its own consequences and its own threats depending on, again, your situation, your circumstances? So my thoughts on preparation revolve around what I think will be the most likely timeline and intensity and from the perception of my own circumstances. It may not be the same timeline that you believe is going to happen in through your own research. And again, you're probably in different circumstances than I find myself. You know, it's so interesting when you say that, because if we take a step outside of the collapse conversation and we just pretend that everything is peachy and that everything will just continue to float along the way it's been for the past few generations, you could ask somebody like, hey, what's the best way to prepare for retirement? And somebody might say like, well, you should pinch every penny and put that all towards your 401k or whatever. Whereas other people would say like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to I'm going to live a more comfortable lifestyle right now and kind of hope things work out when I get to retirement age if I ever do get to retirement age. Right? So even it feels to me like nobody can say this is the right way to prepare for retirement and it feels like nobody can say this is the right way to prepare for collapse. All that anybody can say is if you want this outcome, take this route and if you want this outcome, take this other route. Right? So I love that you called out like to some people, even if they think collapse is going to happen, it's not as worth it to them to prepare as, as it is for somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. And I we've said this a lot of times in this podcast uh, through the different episodes, but I am not an expert in any of this. I am just a guy learning about it, teaching kind of what I learned. So I am not your financial advisor yeah, in your analogy that you just gave, Kellen. I am not here telling you what you should do to prepare for collapse. I'm not telling you to spend money. I'm not telling you to change your lifestyle, make any major life decision. And I'm certainly not trying to predict when collapse is going to happen. All that is for you, the listener, to study and decide. I'm simply giving what I think is the best way to try and be the most prepared possible, kind of what my best case scenario would be. And so the last thing that I'll mention here before we just hop in is that I personally am nowhere near where we're about to talk about when it comes to preparedness. It's really been relatively recently that I've even looked into what it would mean to be well prepared and I don't really have the time and money to put into it. So please don't think that I'm over here being this perfect example of preparedness or that the things I'm about to describe are like where I'm at because I'm living in the same boat as you or probably worse off 
I know what a good situation to be in looks like. I know what a bad situation to be in looks like. I just don't have the means to accomplish it yet. And like I mentioned before, I haven't really decided if I want to put all the effort into making that happen myself or not, or if I'm happy being one of the guys that just says, I'm going to live it up now. And, and when collapse comes, like just accept the consequences. So with all that said, what viewpoint do I take on preparation? And like mentioned, I think it's important to note that in a lot of ways, my ideas on this differ from what you might hear if you were to speak with someone who considers themselves a prepper. And it's not that I disagree with what they teach. It's more just about the philosophy that I see in those communities. So I think it's just good to know if you're new to this whole idea of preparing, you know, even if you're going to go and you're going to learn a lot from prepper forums, which I think is great because there's so much good information there. You just want to make sure that you know there are different philosophies and be able to choose the philosophy, I guess, that you think is the most pertinent. When I tell people about my feelings about collapse, they sometimes ask if I'm a prepper. And I don't really like to say yes. And the reason or the main reason is actually in the definition of prepper if you Google it. So when you Google it, it says that a prepper is a person who believes a catastrophic disaster or emergency is likely to occur in the future and makes active preparations for it, typically by stockpiling food, ammunition, and other supplies. So that goes back to what we were saying before. Um, the part that I take issue with is that it makes it seem like you know, it's going to be a catastrophic disaster or emergency. They seem to think that it's going to happen all at once. There will be like a solar flare or an EMP or a terrorist attack. Whatever it is, this large-scale event that happens overnight, and when they wake up, the world is just going to be this sort of chaotic mess. They might even believe that it will be economic issues or caused by some of the vulnerabilities that we've discussed in, in the podcast, but they seem to believe that it will happen extremely rapidly and that once it happens, it's game over and the world is instantly and permanently collapsed at that point. And understandably, that's going to change the way that they prepare, right? You tend to see more of this mentality of like, I need to build a bunker and bury it underground and set up the booby traps around my property. And this idea that it's going to be Mad Max on day one and don't trust anybody, every man for himself. Uh, they think that their neighbors are going to instantly be their enemy because they want what they have. I got on a prepper forum the other day and the main topics I was seeing were things like why trash bags are the best tool to have when it hits the fan and how to eat pine cones. <laughs> so like these very specific topics, which might be good information to have, but definitely not the main conversation I would be having right now. You know, their solution to survive collapse is either to hole up in their bunker with a crap ton of food or bug out meaning they're going to go camp out in the wilderness until everybody's killed each other, and then they'll come back into the cities that are empty at that point when all is said and done. And because everyone is instantly their enemy, they load up on guns and ammo to protect their bunker from the hordes of people that are going to be coming for their stuff. So in saying all this, I don't want you to think that I'm saying it's bad to stock up on food and water and ammunition and things like that. In fact, I think it's very important to. It's just the philosophy behind the reason why um, how and when it's going to be used and the proper expectations of what collapse will actually look like and, you know, what comes during and after. And the way you just described it is super helpful for me because that initial question where I was asking, what is a prepper? You've answered that really thoroughly. And now you've even helped me understand why you don't totally agree with their philosophy. Yeah. Like I always wonder what do they plan to do once the food in their bunker is gone? Like they may live for a year or so with all that food built up and assuming they have enough water, they've likely been going crazy, isolated in these bunkers, and eventually they'll have to go out 
to get more food and resources. And the thing is that the only way to get more at that point will be to take it from others. A lot of preppers have that attitude of it being like a Mad Max situation, and I think that being disconnected from reality a little makes them think that in that situation, it's fine to kill who they've deemed their enemies for food. Like, that's their plan. You know, if if they're bugging out, they think they're going to go all mountain man and survive harsh winters in the mountains by hunting and fishing. And to me, it's all just a bit of a, a fantasy. It seems kind of like they're, like they're LARPing. LARPing is live-action role-playing, and it's commonly used with, like, the guys that you see out at protests, like the far right-wing guys who will walk around with AK-47s and, like, their bulletproof vests, but who, if it really came to, like, an actual war, they'd probably <laughs> not participate sort of thing. And so, anyway, that's, that's, again, a lot of harsh talk on preppers, and I don't think they're all that way. I think some really do know what they're doing. They really get it, um, but I think some just have, like, a bunch of money and they're just trying to spend it on all these fancy gadgets that they think are going to help them when um, when the electricity goes out one morning when they wake up. So another thing that I, I don't agree with is that preppers tend to prep in secret. Um, they have these like secret bunkers that they want to put in secret locations. They don't want their neighbors to know what's going on at all. They think that if their neighbors are clueless to collapse, then they'll be the first ones to go and they don't have to worry about them as much. Now, I'm not against being discreet. I think that's important, but I also don't think it's right to consider everyone around you your enemy. That's a wrong viewpoint, and it's actually probably a more dangerous approach because it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you make other people the enemy, they're going to be your enemy, and that attitude is going to be reflected pre-collapse. Your neighbors are going to think you're the weirdo prepper guy next door who's rude to them and doesn't trust them, and that creates a sort of resentment. Yeah, and it almost sounds like this mentality that everyone around you is a parasite that doesn't want to actually put in the work to have what they need. You know, it's the whole Aesop's fable of the grasshoppers and the ants and preparing for winter and the grasshoppers just wanted to play the whole time while the ants were preparing. It feels like if you're trying to do everything secretly, you're increasing the chances that your neighbors are just going to live in ignorance and not be prepared. I don't know if that makes sense, but I feel like if there's some sort of collaboration with your neighbors or they at least understand that you're making a rational effort to be prepared, that will help inspire them to want to be prepared themselves and want to work together with you instead of trying to like create this separation and create this disparity of preparedness between you and the people around you. Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, that's, that's right where we're headed. There, there's a specific type of preparing in the collapse community that I much prefer, and it's referred to as resiliency. So resilience is defined as the capacity of a system to encounter disruptions and still maintain its basic structure and functions. So there's a stark contrast here between this definition and that of a prepper. In resiliency, we're expecting disruptions Notice that there's an S at the end, meaning we know there will be multiple. And the goal of resiliency is for a system to be able to meet those disruptions and still maintain basic structure and function. So a system could be as small as like our individual households or a neighborhood or even a community. And it could be as large as regions or nations. The idea is that even as the system experiences those shocks, we can continue to live our lives in a relatively stable manner instead of you know, taking your family out into the wilderness to freeze to death or isolating yourself in an underground bunker. The basic principle of resiliency is to protect yourself against the shock of losing access to the parts of the system that we rely on. So because we've all been raised to be so reliant on the system, that's a pretty big undertaking. 
And there are like mental and emotional aspects to this, besides just the physical and temporal ones that we normally think about. So being prepared means that while the system may experience this shock, a resilient person or neighborhood won't suffer as deeply from that shock. And medically speaking, shock is a, is a life-threatening condition that people go through when they experience certain traumas. So when someone gets in a car accident or something like that, they can go into shock. And metaphorically speaking, I think a lot of people, especially in the first world who are used to their comforts, are going to go through a type of shock when their standards of living that they're used to slip away. And that'll take a huge toll mentally on people who aren't prepared and could result in either you know a panic or just a complete lack of any action. So becoming mentally and physically resilient now means that while others are struggling who aren't resilient, we're able to continue moving forward. So then let's talk about who is most likely to survive through collapse. I think the first set of people is obvious and it's the ultra wealthy. You know, they're in the best position to be able to live where they want, put money towards whatever they need. They're the ones that could afford $100 for a loaf of bread if it came to that. And they'll have the leverage to be able to pay to continue to have water pumped to their homes, to have utilities when other people can't. If they see the signs and get the timing right, they could put themselves in a pretty good position so that even once their money's useless, they have other more natural forms of wealth and can maintain themselves in a position of comfort and even of power. The one caveat here is that if there were ever a class war or a revolution, um, those are the people that are the most in danger. So being wealthy isn't everything and could even be detrimental. But if you're listening to this and you're well-to-do, you certainly have an advantage over others who might be less fortunate. So we've talked about how collapse will affect the poor quickest and most profoundly. I think an important distinction to make, though, is that when we say poor, we're talking more about what you own than how much you own. So, for example, a rural person who lives free of consumer debt on a couple of acres with a water well and knows how to farm or garden, they may not have any real tangible assets, but they're in a much better situation than, say, a middle-class couple who are saddled with credit card debt. Uh, you know, they've got student loans and car debt. Having money helps, but it's not everything, and you have to know how to use it correctly. All right, so let's talk about what I think the best and worst situations you could be in when things start cooking. So the worst situation I can think of would be Living in a large city, whether you're middle class and paying like a large mortgage or you're poor and renting, this would be someone who lives in like a super high cost of living area. They might have a $600,000 mortgage on a crappy house who might be making a decent amount of money, but it all has to go towards that debt. The only way to continue that lifestyle is to continue putting a bunch of money towards it. If the housing market crashes, they can't just sell their house and leave. So in that way, they're stuck. If they lose their job, they're in a whole lot of hot water without really any options. And for a more poor renter, you're in a lease and couldn't afford to leave anyway. If things got super bad, they're in the first area to lose access to food and water and the worst area for civil unrest. You don't know your neighbors, and if you do, it's just because like they're yelling at you through the wall to keep it down at night. And for me, honestly, cities just kind of give me this anxiety. Even when I'm just visiting, I feel so uncomfortable. And the next worst is suburbs for similar reasons. Um, you know, when people start leaving the cities, they're going to the suburbs. Those areas start to get overpopulated and then you run into essentially the same, the same sort of issues. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, and it, it kind of makes me think of the whole carrying capacity idea. We talked about it like on a national or a global level, right? That the earth can only handle so many people on it. But you think about even just an area of land. I've heard, I don't know if this is true. I'm sure we could go look it up. But I've heard that in the city of Manhattan, if just everybody who was living above the 20th floor had to all be standing on the ground at once, there wouldn't be enough room for them, which is just crazy, right? So then when you think about like, if there's a water shortage or a food shortage in, a, in an area that's so overpopulated and so over its natural carrying capacity like that, you're going to be in a much dicier situation than if you're if you're in a rural area where the resources can be kind of more spread out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, cities are completely dependent on rural areas to provide them with what they need to stay alive. No large city is self-sustaining. They're not growing their own food and, you know, that sort of thing. Cities are really easy to choke off and they would be the first to have those impacts of suffering supply chains and things like that. So the very best situation I think you could find yourself in is this. If you're a financially independent person living in a rural area that's strategically located, you've got some land and neighbors who are on the same page and level as you. You've probably spent like a number of years building trusting relationships with them. And while you have a year or more supply of food and water, you've also spent a good amount of time learning to garden and become self-sufficient. So you, you will have established both a personal homestead and a neighborhood or community of self-reliant people like you with whom you can trade goods and skills and also with whom you've made plans for defending your neighborhood. In a best case scenario, your home is going to be located on land with a well or an aquifer. You don't require established utilities to keep the home warm or cool. Maybe you've invested in some off-grid solar. You might have a septic tank or an outhouse. Maybe if you've got a lot of money, you've dished out for like a composting toilet. But you have lots of self-reliance skills from canning food to knowing self-defense. And you're also able to go mobile if the situation requires it. So if the land you're in becomes uninhabitable for whatever reason, you have the resources and abilities to transplant yourself somewhere new with relative ease. You're not so stuck on the land. Yeah, that all sounds really great, but it sounds like a dream, right? That sounds like a little utopia where you've got everything just perfectly set up. And although there's aspects of that that hopefully we can all attain, it frankly seems kind of unrealistic. Yeah. And like I said, this is uh, what I view as just being the absolute best case scenario. And like I said at the beginning of this episode, many, if not most people, won't make it through collapse. 
so the ones who survive it won't have done so by taking an easy road, right? They will go out of their way to try and make something like that become their reality, and not everyone can do it, which is why, in the end, most people likely won't make it through. So, yes, it's a tall order. It's not possible for everyone, and some people just don't want to. It may not be worth it to live rurally for some people who love their cities. Um, Some people can't do that because of work, or they can't afford it. And there are lots of challenges and things like finding good neighbors or getting neighbors on the same page as you. And and that can seem unrealistic. But again, I think preparing yourself to the very best scenario would take a lot of work, a lot of forethought. And it's just about whether or not as a person, you think that's the right scenario for you and whether or not it's possible. It makes me kind of want to do a little personal gap analysis, right? Where there's a spectrum that you talked about from worst case scenario to best case scenario, I want to find where I fit on that and and what the gap is between where I'm at now and what the best case scenario is, and then just identify which of those things do I think I can obtain. Exactly. Yeah. We'll talk more about um, that specifically in the next episode, kind of this idea of not getting... too overwhelmed by it because like it's so much if, if you were to consider where you are now and if you decided that what i just described was the best case scenario for you there's likely a pretty large gap there if you're the average person and so while that's overwhelming um, it's just about thinking okay what's my biggest vulnerability right now what steps can i take to patch that and then once it's patched what's next so my ideal scenario that i described has a lot of similarities but also a lot of differences to that of a sort of classic prepper. While we both agreed that being off-grid, having a solid supply of food and water, and even being well-armed is important, you'll notice that in my scenario, there are no secret bunkers. There's no enemy neighbors, booby traps. I don't have any plans to morally destroy myself by taking someone else's life for their food or for taking their food at all. Um, Resilience revolves around the same manner of surviving that existed before complex societies began in the first place. And that is through living sustainably. If your best plan is to survive off of food reserves, honestly, you're no better off than our society is now, relying completely on energy reserves of fossil fuels. You'll experience the same pattern of the self-destruction, the moral decay, personal collapse, ultimately the same demise as our society is on track to hit. And as a people, we should have plan for living sustainably earlier on. And so what I'm saying is that if you want to live, you need to plan on living sustainably early on. We don't know how much time is left, so now is the time to start. And when I talk about living sustainably, it's this idea that the food reserves should be there for emergencies, for when you absolutely have to, when there's nothing else to eat. But there should be a bridge in those hard moments. You should have a way to continue to grow your own food, trade with your neighbors, exchange expertise, exchange, you know, if one of you has a bad crop year, the the other one might not. And so you have that cushion, whereas just having a bunch of food in your storage room and planning on eating that, like you might think that a year's worth of food is a lot. But if you want to live for 60, one year's worth of food is not going to get you that far. So I believe that the people that survive collapse will do so in communities. Ones that figured out how to come together to protect each other, to provide for each other. And personally, if what comes from collapse isn't resilient communities, I don't know that I really want to make it or be part of it because I don't want to be the wandering old man from the book, The Road, scavenging for garbage, either you know killing or being killed. 
So in the end, I think that some of what's going to determine who will live will be luck, but much of it will be your planning, your foresight, and your preparedness now. I love that. And a lot of what you're saying echoes what we've talked about in the past, which is kind of the premise of all of this, right? That our complexity and our growth has given us a lot of luxuries and has given us a lot of convenience, but we've traded that for our independence, right? We are so dependent on the, the systems around us that the idea is to get ourselves to a place where we are not so reliant on the system. And I, and I love that you talk about it's going to happen within communities and it's going to happen within, you know, relationships, you know, an, an extreme example that just came to mind, there's actually somebody in my neighborhood growing up, their whole philosophy was they were just stocking up constantly on chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why is because they said like, man, when times get tough, people might have their rice and beans that they've stored away, but people are really going to want chocolate. And they're like, if, I, if I'm the chocolate guy, people are going to come to me willing to trade like sustainable foods and other goods for the chocolate that I have. Like they, they are already planning on trading and collaborating. And not that that's the best way to do it. But I do like the idea of thinking it, it, requires, it requires a group effort instead of just trying to go rogue. Yeah, there are a lot of preppers who will hoard like ammunition because they plan on being able to trade ammunition, you know, trading different things. I think, I think those are all, there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. Maybe chocolate is a good one. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how long chocolate lasts. So that guy you're talking about probably bought his chocolate 20 years ago and it's all gone bad since. But, but yeah, like just this idea of being willing to open your mind a little bit and almost being willing to share with other people. Like, again, I'm not saying that like if you're prepping that you should be out like telling everybody about it. Yeah, that's probably not a good idea. You should be discreet. But when times get hard, don't be the guy who refuses to lend any sort of a helping hand. Be the one who is a leader in your neighborhood, right? And if you've already built trust with your neighbors and you go out of your way to help them and show them that you care, then it's more likely that that's gonna be, that favor is gonna be returned to you when it's needed as well. And I get it, like in the depths of collapse, when things are really, really bad, right? And there's mass suffering and dying and there literally is no food left. Like, yes, stuff's gonna get nasty and people who might normally be friendly might turn not so friendly and people will do whatever it takes to like keep their family alive. And that's one way to look at it. And I think that's also very possibly true. But other people have this philosophy and I, I tend to kind of believe this as well, that even if things got really bad, really fast. Most people, and if you look around at the people around you, most of them are not going to murder you for your food, even if things are tough. I think there's this, whether it's a sense of morality or fear or whatever, like, I don't think it would just be this big bloodbath where your neighbors are all going to come into your house and kill you and kill your wife and your small children so that they can uh, take a little bit of food storage. So anyway, I... I say that to say again that being discreet is good, but even better, or along with being discreet, is building some trust and trying to create uh, a sense of community. Yeah, and I've heard, I don't remember where I heard this, but I've heard that in situations where some form of collapse has happened in a nation or where suddenly a country is destitute and war-torn, that even though people kind of anticipate, oh, everyone's going to suddenly start looting and robbing and raping and, and all these awful things, that in reality, 
there's a lot more good than bad that takes place. There's a lot more people trying to help each other than what most people would expect. And obviously you can't always count on that. And there's always going to be some crazies out there. But as we talk about all of this and like the whole idea of collaborating with neighbors and having a mini society of resilience, right, with your family or friends or the people on your street, it makes me think about the whole reason you started this podcast, right? You you had mentioned that it was so frustrating to a lot of people in the collapse community to try and bring up collapse to anyone around them, because as soon as they would, people would totally disregard everything that they said. And so... If that's true, I imagine a lot of people, maybe even the people listening to this podcast thinking like, how am I supposed to get anyone to work with me on any of this when already there's all this evidence that we're heading on this dangerous path and nobody will hear me? Yeah, I think I think it goes back to expectations about how collapse will happen. In my opinion, I think that collapse is going to come in fits and starts. Like I think that there will be some really tough times followed by some moments of relative stability followed by more really tough times. And in those moments where things are tough, I think people open their eyes a little bit more every time. So one example would be right now during coronavirus, I have spoken with my neighbors several times and we've discussed how crazy this all is how weird it is that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and how high the unemployment rate is and how unstable things feel right now. And even just yesterday, I talked to a neighbor who mentioned that they were doing some things to try and be more prepared. And so I think as this stuff happens, people are are more willing to talk about it. In the past, having that label of a prepper um, I really had that super negative stereotype, like, oh, you're a prepper, you're a conspiracy theorist, wacko, right? And while I still don't love the term prepper, I can talk to someone more openly about the importance of being prepared because we're witnessing the consequences of collapse happening around us already. Going back to what you said earlier about how when things happen, communities tend to come together first. So uh, I don't know if this is where you heard it or not, but on Robert Evans' podcast, It Could Happen Here, he talks about the benefit of war and how there have been lots of studies done around like World War II and some other civil wars, how for a lot of people, it actually makes their mental health better and brings communities closer together because it gives them a united sense of purpose. Right now in life, we're kind of just like going through the motions. Everything's like keeping up with the Joneses and there's no real fulfillment in that. Where in tough times, we have a true purpose and that is to survive. And there's this natural psychological desire to help others survive as well. Not everyone has that probably, but but studies have found that, that communities do tend to come to each other's aid. And so that's a long way of answering the question. But I think to say it simply, as we go through tough times... Those are the moments in which you can step in, have serious conversations with your neighbors. And a lot of times those conversations can start by you offering a helping hand. Hey, stuff's really crappy right now. You know, I I wonder if you guys are doing okay as far as food or whatever, whatever the situation permits you to say. And that allows you to kind of open that door to that conversation. Let them know, I don't know, maybe some ideas around how to get prepared. I'm not saying to go knock on your neighbor's door and say, hi, I'm a prepper. You should be a prepper with me. But I am saying find ways to establish the trust, find ways to start small, discussing the importance of of being prepared, especially taking advantage of moments where the whole world is talking and thinking about it. I think that's brilliant. 
that's such a good answer. And I just think, you know, if all of a sudden the stores were out of toilet paper again, and I didn't have any toilet paper, and a neighbor came to me and said, like, hey, we've got some extra, here's some. Oh, by the way, do you have some eggs? We ran out of eggs or sugar or whatever. Like, that would immediately establish that connection and that trust. Exactly. Exactly. And this isn't me, but if you were someone who had like a thousand rolls of toilet paper in your basement, when you take over a roll to your neighbor or a bag or whatever, you don't say, hey, I've got a thousand rolls. Don't worry. I've got tons extra here. Take some for you. That's not being discreet, but rather going over saying, like you said, hey, I have a few extra rolls of toilet paper. Just want to make sure you guys are all set, you know, and and that just opens the door to be able to have that conversation they might be like, wow, where'd you find this? You know, be like, oh, I thought ahead and I bought a couple bags. It's always good to be prepared, right? And then going from there to build whatever trust and friendship you can, sometimes you'll find that people are more open to it than you would have expected. They might be the one to say like, like yeah, I got a bad feeling about what's coming. You know, oh, great. Well, what are you doing to prepare? Well, maybe we should make a plan together just in case. I'll buy a bunch of toilet paper if you want to buy a bunch of extras, you know, something else. That sort of thing just just starts. And then you can have discussions around like, hey, I was actually thinking about starting a garden. Do you know anything about gardening? That's the general idea. And those conversations can start there. Obviously, it would be best if you lived around people who you know and trust. Like, Kellen, if you and I could live next door to each other, and if we had a few other friends who we could pull in or family members and, and build our own little neighborhood of people who are already on the same page, that's not super likely to be able to happen. So you start where you can. And like I said, I never said it's easy. I never said it's super realistic. But I think that those are the situations that are going to make you most likely to be able to make it through uh, the long term of what will happen with collapse. Okay, cool. So if I'm just summarizing everything that I've heard from you during this podcast episode today, it sounds like the way that you prepare has a lot to do with what you expect, right? Like if you're expecting a big cataclysmic event, if you're expecting things to go from normal to the apocalypse in one day, then you might prepare differently than everything that we've talked about and and the more realistic view of how collapse will happen. And with that, the goal, it sounds like, is really just to become resilient. And that means you you want to become as independent as possible, that you're not going to have that shock that you talked about as things get worse. You know, ideally, you are in a rural area and financially independent, and you've got your own water source, and you've got a way to grow food, and you've got a community of neighbors that can all work together to help each other. Like, that's the ideal. We might not be able to get to that level because of our personal situation but we can at least follow the same principles of getting to a place where we are resilient. Yeah, well said. That's perfect. And so like I like I mentioned, this episode was more around sort of the, uh, the whole philosophy, the way to think about and set expectations. Next episode, we'll actually talk about maybe some different strategies for making sure you have food and water and all these different things that you need. And we'll talk about some things that maybe you wouldn't normally think about when you think about preparation. It'll just be a lot more specifics than we talked about today. Yeah. And I, and I'll be honest, when I think about being prepared and what I want to learn from you, I want to know the details, the specifics, like what exactly do I need to do? So I'm really excited for our next conversation But I will say, I think it was very necessary to lay this foundation and at least establish kind of at a high level what the philosophy is and why you might take the specific actions that you would. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a paradigm shift for some people who might view prepping in a different light to be able to view it in this light. And while next week we will do some specifics, I do want to just throw this 
caveat out there that prepping is huge. Like there's so much, there's entire podcasts about this, um, books and all sorts of things dedicated to just preparing. And because I'm not an expert, because I don't have all the information and because I haven't done much to prepare myself, um, we're going to keep it pretty high level and maybe we'll dive in deeper and deeper in future episodes Um, But next week will at least be a very good starting point to get your mind thinking about different ways or different things you can be doing to to get your foot off the ground with it. Awesome. Looking forward to it. I get a lot of benefit from these conversations with you, Corey, and I'm sure the listeners do as well. You and I have these conversations with that purpose in mind that you started with of just trying to help people. And if anyone out there is willing to help support what we're trying to do here, you could find a link to the Patreon account in the description of the podcast episode. Or if you want to support in other ways, it'd be awesome if you could share the podcast or review it wherever you download your podcast. Something just to make sure we can get the most outreach as possible. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.